Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Test Tubes and Cauldrons, a podcast where we talk about the science behind spirituality. I'm Astra. I'm Phil. And I'm Honey. And this week, we are going to be talking about superstition, folklore, myth, and praxis. Lots of things kind of all pulled together because they're all related. But before we do this, we're going to do our What Happened on This Day. So it is currently March 12th, my birthday. Yay. And on this day, Simon Newcomb, Canadian-American astronomer and mathematician who prepared the ephemeris, which is essentially a table of computed places for celestial bodies over periods of time. It's a really popular tool used in astrology. And then Tables of Astronomical Constants was born. He was an astronomer before becoming the superintendent of the U.S. Nautical Almanac Office. And during this time, he undertook numerous studies in celestial mechanics. His central goal was was to place planetary and satellite motions on a completely uniform system, thereby raising a solar system studies and the theory of gravitation to a new level. He pretty much accomplished this goal, actually, with the adoption of his new system of astronomical constants at the end of the century. So, yeah, if you're curious who was the first person to design an ephemeris, we owe that to Simon Newcomb. We want to talk about why we chose to record this episode. So, actually, I think it came because we talked about it in one of our previous episodes, and we were like, we should make this an episode, and here we are. I mean, I think a lot of it was because, I don't know, <clears throat> I feel like the the idea of folklore versus myth versus superstition is all very there's no hard lines right and i do think it's useful to have definitions even like if they're just like sort of working definitions because i think that they play different but important roles in you know praxis and in belief but that's kind of why we wanted to i don't know this this episode's going to be a lot using so let's just dive right in then let's talk about praxis so what is praxis what is praxis? It's it's a really hard thing to define, I think, because it has it has like philosophical definitions and political definitions and personal definitions. But I think the word originally came from these Aristotelian ideas about three modalities of behavior. So you have theorem, which is kind of thinking about things, and poesis, which I think is making. I need to double check that. And praxis, which is doing. So it's it's kind of the process of doing and living. And often this is used to refer to your religion or your beliefs. So it could refer in somebody's religion to ritual activities, but it can also refer to acting something out in a more kind of abstract and philosophical way. Yeah, so we've, I think we've talked about this before, and it can kind of apply to this idea of like armchair occultism, where praxis would be the experiential, the doing part of spirituality or occultism. And that's kind of where gnosis comes from, rather than just kind of sitting back and reading and learning. Would you would you agree with that definition? Yeah, I mean, I... I think that makes sense. I mean, praxis is, in my understanding, praxis is the doing and, you know, doxy, like orthodoxy, orthopraxy, doxy is the belief system. I was reading a book today about very hyper-local tradition, and they talked about it being non-orthodoxic, but being orthopraxis, meaning that they put a larger emphasis on things being done right, even if the belief didn't matter as much. Yeah, I also agree. I actually sometimes have a funny comparison, which is that praxis is basically wisdom by taste. And so and kind of the thought behind that is that the word for wisdom in Latin and Hebrew actually comes from the word for taste. And so there's also some psalms that reflect this. There's a scripture that says, taste and see that God is good, which kind of reiterates this idea of 
taste of being this experience, this tangible experience necessary, then have that like guide your day-to-day life rather than attributing it to dogma or any kind of like institutional teachings. This thought that that wisdom by taste, this experiential knowing or gnosis is really important and has a really big impact on how we live our day-to-day lives and also an impact on the cosmology I think that we hold to, especially when it comes to actually engaging with your practical level. Any other thoughts? I know, Phil, you brought up you brought up like orthodoxy and orthopraxy. So should we maybe talk about that a little bit more? And these are like the general accepted definitions that I've seen is that, you know, orthodoxy is right belief, orthopraxy is right practice. Many Christian denominations are orthodoxic, meaning that they emphasize right belief. Certain traditions like Catholicism is orthodoxic and orthopraxic in which right belief and right practice are also really important. And it's interesting because if you look on Wikipedia, they list neo-paganism as being an orthopraxic religion or orthopraxic religion. Like if you're on the Wikipedia page for orthopraxy, it lists like paganism under there, which I've actually heard people say, which is interesting because I'm not sure I believe in the take that modern paganism is orthopraxic. Like I've heard people say that. Why not? Can I ask why? I guess to me, it's like, who, like, I don't, I guess for me, I get a little bit confused of, of orthopraxic or orthopraxis outside of community, I guess. And it's not to say that we don't have a community, but we're not all like a really organized community or we're not a close knit community. So like in the hyper-local tradition, they are like a community of immigrants uh, or of children of immigrants and children and children and children of immigrants. So there is this like bond and a physical also like a physical location that ties the community together so for them it makes sense that there's no orthodoxy but there is orthopraxy but i don't know i guess like because i see people say like neopaganism is orthopraxic emphasizing right praxis but i also see people who are like everything is valid and i'm not sure those two things can exist together i don't know i'd be curious to hear what your thoughts are those are just like my initial thoughts it's always felt a little incorrect to me I have also seen a lot of like oh Hellenism specifically is orthopraxic like it's it seems to be just something that goes around the community constantly I mean obviously that there are these definitions exist for a reason you can kind of generalize religions into kind of one or the other but I don't know that any religion is truly one or the other like I think it's quite an extreme categorization to say that anything is purely praxis based furthering that there's the fact that obviously neo-paganism is reconstructionist so there's an emphasis on the kind of the doing the recreating and that's because we know probably we know more about what they did than kind of what they felt and they thought and they believed so i think we have maybe a little bit of a bias there because we we don't really know to a great extent apart from certain writers about how they felt and how they thought about the gods so we, we kind of have to focus on that praxis part. You bring up a really good point. And that was kind of my thought is like, when I think about neo-paganism, I definitely think more about there's an emphasis on practice and both in like what we do, like ritualistic rituals, prayer, engaging with the divine on like a practical level at daily, there's this emphasis on doing it through activity. And so to me, that suggests more of an orthopraxy basis to it. But I think it's interesting to think about the point you just made in hand, which is that back in like, go as far back to the Greeks and Romans, it was the beliefs that informed their day to day. And they were, we've talked about this before, but how the beliefs were so 
integrated into their day-to-day that it wasn't necessarily actions being taken to engage with the divine. It was just something that happened naturally because the beliefs are so strong. And in that manner, it really is more more orthodoxy in nature. And so I think there maybe is a disconnect between what we are reconstructing from those religions back in their origins and kind of taking out of context where the beliefs inform their day-to-day which is much more orthodoxic versus kind of what we see now in the modern community, which is much more praxis-based. So things are done with the intent of, of connecting with the divine or doing a spell or something like that. What about something like witchcraft, which is not technically considered a religion, right? But it's what a lot of people identify as. And like witchcraft to me is something that I would argue is probably very orthopraxic in nature because it's very much focused on doing. I would agree with that. I, I also... Th- I'm one of those people who I'm not, I see that, I I think that if you identify with the practice so much that it becomes your belief set, I consider that more to be a religion. (laughs) I think people can incorporate witchcraft solely, like, and be something else. But I think that if you make it the whole of your spirituality, I think it becomes a religion for you. This quote unquote secular religions are a real thing. I, I, I also don't really think it witchcraft is like orthopraxic like maybe in small communities because to me orthopraxic it i don't think you can be solitarily orthopraxic that doesn't make sense to me because then it's just like like what is because then your your proxy is only your praxis it's, it's just yours you know like so everything you do will be orthopraxic and orthodoxic because it's your own system so i think if you're like a solitary witch i think you know i don't, I don't really think it's orthopraxic either i think maybe before like the like maybe in the 90s witchcraft was more orthopraxic wicca is definitely orthopraxic because it has like a a set defined you know religious tradition that is explicitly that but witchcraft on its own i don't think is orthopraxic because it's so individual you know i'd be curious to know hanny i saw your mouth open so (laughs) i'll go back to you after this i'm curious to know kind of where you're understanding of community is being pulled into this because like from my understanding of the the word ortho right that that prefix it just means straight or correct and so it's really an emphasis on like what is the correct action or what is the correct belief to be having and so I don't necessarily see community within that definitions which is why I consider witchcraft to be orthopraxic praxis, even if it is individualized like if that makes sense I guess to me it's like well who's defining right that's the main thing to me is who's defining right because if it's your own praxis, every, most people that I know think that their praxis is right. So then to me, like, what 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 distinguishes orthopraxy from something else? Wouldn't everything you do then be orthopraxic and orthodoxic? I don't know. If there's no one defining it for you. So then you talk, you're talking about, like, right in terms of a specific tradition or community. Like you said, yeah. like, right? So, like, correct in the way of, like, in according to the Wiccan tradition or correct in terms of, like, the Salmonic tradition or whatever. Yeah, this is what I wanted to kind of touch on, actually, um, is that I think it's much easier to put religions into these boxes when they are larger and they have a more established doctrine. So, for example, in the Catholic Church, I think that has, although there are many sort of different segments and and fragments that have shot off from Catholicism, you can kind of identify a core doctrine to which orthodoxy is attached. Whereas when you have something that is much more decentralized, that um, maybe doesn't have you know, central texts, for example, that people can adhere to, it's much harder to define orthodoxy. When you're saying orthopraxy, you're kind of referring to somebody almost living their beliefs. 
so it's like connecting doxy and praxy does that does that make sense i'm not sure if i'm <laughs> being confusing there's the there's no central doctrine to which to adhere which then makes it more individualistic right like if that's the way we're thinking about it it removes the correct belief from like the group setting yeah it's hard to define i think because even like if you consider the protestants versus like catholicism i would say that protestant christianity for instance is like strictly orthodoxy i really don't think there's much practice involved there because it's focused there's like a significant emphasis on belief and faith faith over works right versus catholicism which is like a mix of orthodoxy and orthopraxy um you see you have things like communion and actions that are taken that are really important to the orthodoxy or the doctrine that they follow and so i think yeah it's hard when there's both because it's like where is that line in the sand between what call one or the other i was even thinking about this like scientology for instance right there is a central doctrine of scientology but at the same time scientology is heavily based on works like what can you do living the appropriate life like controlling your actions you know on a day-to-day to like reach this higher level and that's very much so like orthopraxic in nature even though they also have a strict doctrine that they adhere to which is crazy <laughs> hard i think it's hard to define um and like set a line in the sand for sure okay so then maybe if we think about like sabbatic witchcraft for example or I'm gonna, I'm gonna say I don't know a huge amount about the actual specific practices but so witchcraft which has a kind of more established central tradition would you say that is tends towards being more orthodoxic just because of that central doctrine or not really I think it depends on which tradition we're talking about the reason why I say that is because it even because even within like you say um, traditional witchcraft, right? Even within traditional witchcraft, there seems to be kind of a core set of, of beliefs or standards that are held to. But even within that, there's such variation within the doctrine that it's like, is it really orthodoxic or is it more orthopractic, um, orthopractic in that there's an emphasis on doing, which then informs the way that you view the world versus something like, I think, maybe Salmonic magic or even most ceremonial magic, but I would say is probably more orthodoxic in nature. But even be- that doctrine changes kind of between them, but like it's the beliefs that inform the practice and like how we do things, right? Like these things were written in scriptures or whatever. This is how you do it. This is how we're told. But even not necessarily, because if you look at like the Grimoire tradition, I would argue is probably more orthopraxic over a typical ceremonial working because it's very much so a we've taken ceremonial magic we've done it ourselves and then based on what happened that informs then our beliefs and we change things it's yeah i don't know <laughs> i feel like i just rambled so what do you think well i just learned that there's something called comedic orthodoxy which mm, is okay. a religion based on comedicism and it claims to be a descendant of ancient egyptian religion and they have a presiding pharaoh I guess. Yeah, I think it's it's weird because like when people say orthodoxy, people oftentimes mean orthopraxic, you know, like mm-hmm. when people will say like orthodox Jews, what they really mean is people who follow the practices to a T. I don't think there's a hard line between them. And I think it like once you get to decentralized movements, things get really confusing because to me, I just don't understand why bother calling something orthopraxic if it's just, you know, what's true for you. Because, you know, no one's defining what's right if it's if you're defining what's right. I would say definitely ancient religions were orthopraxic, uh, at least ancient the ancient Greek religion was. For there, There's a couple of reasons for that. So I think one thing that's hard for us to wrap our heads around is that our ideas of belief 
really started changing after the Enlightenment. I think people oftentimes will ask me, especially like secular people will ask me, you know, like, do you believe in the myths? And I'm like, oh, you've just opened a can of worms. <laughs> or people will ask, did the ancient Greeks believe in their myths? And the answer is not straightforward. Because our idea of belief is significantly different than it was back then. And there's a lot of discussion and arguments within the classics community about what belief is, especially when it comes to looking specifically at the ancient Greek religion. Because it's it's not yes, nor is it no. Because their beliefs were oftentimes more informed by practice than they were by actual so-called committed belief you know they did these things because it was what they were expected to it's so hard once you get into that weeds because it's like you don't want to say well they didn't believe in their myths because their myths informed their practices so i feel like it's something similar to like the idea of parables within christianity right like the myths they they provided guidelines they informed people's practices on things they should and shouldn't do very similar to how the parables are like these moral stories that inform what is quote unquote good and not good and so maybe they were held in the same kind of regard I don't know I'm not an expert on any of that so correct me if I'm wrong there it's extremely hard to define so in this book the story of myth which I would recommend to anyone the story of myth by Sarah Isles Johnston she dives into this question of what is myth and she breaks down the idea that like uh, like what is also belief and she points out, so the, the word myth actually was the way that we view myth today, that specific way that we view myth uh, was created in the 18th century by Christian Gottlob Hein, who's a classical philologist. And he looked at things from a specific like Latin, le- like a um, Roman lens as well. So he did a lot of like mixing things. He had a student, I believe, who took this idea further, this idea of myths as fables, and specifically trying to define myths into these certain categories, when in reality, they had always sort of just been kind of like stories. That was what Sarah Isles Johnson was really trying to get at in her book. And she had this quote at the beginning. She said, mythos originally just meant something that was said. It could denote a word or a statement or a story of any kind, even if uttered only within one's own mind, with no implication as to whether it was fact or fiction, true or false, or something in between. So she was trying to get at, I guess, that the truth, the truthiness, I guess, of these stories were not what was important. It was just that they kind of like shaped or exist she actually brings up dungeons and dragons which i think is really fascinating as a way of modern myth making you know like we know logically obviously that these stories that we create or role play are are not real but yet they allow us to experiment and experience and express ourselves in these ways that we can't even through just like regular storytelling Now, this is not just like people often compare myths to fan fiction, which annoys me a lot. (laughs) They're they're not quite like that. I don't know. It's so hard to describe because we have such a a specific viewpoint of belief nowadays that just was not it was just not something that had existed until uh, much, much later. So could I ask you then, what do you think? based on this, the difference between myth and folklore is? Mm -hmm. Aye, there's the rub. (laughs) I guess to me, the difference between myth and folklore is I think myths are constructed stories. Most of the myths that we have 
were written by poets, right? Most of them were written or transcribed by poets. And I think the difference, and I think there, there's no hard line between them, right? I think a lot of things that we think of as Greek myths could really be seen as folklore rather than myths. But to me, myths are designated, constructed stories. And to me, folklore is an organic thing that just springs up from the land in many ways. So like a lot of fairy folklore, I would not count, I would not call it fairy myths because there's not, like there are myths maybe about fairies, but I would say that fairies themselves fall into the realm of, of folklore because they are these organic things that sort of spring up and these natural tales that just kind of emerge from the land. I don't know if that makes any sense. <laughs> No, it definitely does. I, I was I was confused as well because when I was looking up the dictionary definitions, it was it kind of defined folklore as kind of what you said, this these these tales that spring up, they're they're among the common people, they're stories that are commonly passed around. But then a myth specifically is something that provides an explanation for something. So um usually early history or religious belief or often a natural phenomenon. But thinking of myths, I don't necessarily think that's always true. And I think that you could easily say that folklore also makes its way into um, kind of religious beliefs as well. So I, I really don't think it's as cut and dry as all that. It's quite hard to draw, draw the line. Yeah, I think the main difference is is what Sarah Isles Johnson is really trying to land on is that myths are stories. And I don't think folklore has to be stories. Like folklore... I would say like something folkloric would be like New England folklore, right? Kiss someone on the new moon and you'll get a present or something, you know? That is folklore. That's not a story. There's no beginning, middle, and end to that, right? So I think that's where folklore is is more. It's, it's not like a cut and dry story. Like I think folk tales are myths. Like I think they're the same. I think they're not necessarily the same maybe, but they're, I don't know pretty much comparable but i think that's where maybe the difference is i think if we go back to look at the definition of just what lore means it can maybe help differentiate the two so lore specifically is like a body of tradition or knowledge on a subject held by a particular group i think that combining that is kind of leads you to the definition of what folklore is it's a body of knowledge from a tradition of like a particular region so it's the lore of that region and that, that maybe distinguishes folklore from, like, a myth, which is more of a story. Because, like, I think of lore in, like, world building, something like D&D or even just, like, creative writing groups. And it's, like, the lore is just what is. It is what is in the world, how things work and all of that in accordance to a particular region. And so when I think of folklore, I'm thinking about the things that just are, that are common parts of that particular region. And that, that blend into belief and probably tradition versus mythos, which is more of like a story meant to guide your you know, everyday life. Does that make, does that differentiation like maybe help? That makes a lot, a lot of sense to me. It does. But then I can also think of examples where it doesn't make sense. And it's hard because like I can think, for example... There are lots of stories from where I grew up, which I would refer to as folklore. So like the Green Children of Woolpit, for example, that's a story about how two bright green children turned up that was related to kind of fairy lore of that area. Green Children of Woolpit, fun fact about them is that they only ate broad beans, which Amazing. I just had to mention because we have included so much bean lore in this podcast, but a lot of it has been Pythagoras based. So 
um, interesting. We should just do a whole episode uh, on beans. Totally. We should. We should do a whole episode on beans. But I wouldn't necessarily say that's a myth. And it's something that's recounted to have happened. But it, is, it folk, is it folklore? Is it, you know, do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like it's, it's very difficult to, because it is a story, to drop it into the definition of mythology. I mean, it's, uh, we're dancing into the weeds here, you know? Like, we are. I think ultimately, when you get down to the semantics of it, they all have crossovers. They all fail at defining this this thinginess this truthiness it's so hard because like people oftentimes would define myth as you know taking place in a certain time like so greek myths were traditionally described as have something to do with the gods and the heroes has something to do with a large but limited cast of characters whose names are typically unique to them they're are oftentimes myths set in a distant past and set in a geographically specific place. But, you know, that doesn't define... Because myths were... The word myth was originally created to define Greek myths, right? And we've now expanded that as comparative religions has developed to describe other forms of, of mythos, which is just, I don't know, it, it all breaks down. You know, folklore mythos, I think, are all very similar words i agree i think i think that you can have like region specific myths that are still stories from a region that's like different than folklore which is it's like a part of that culture i i see a distinction although i think it's i also agree with you that it's really hard to draw a line because i think there's so much crossover between like myth and folklore and even superstition which we'll get into later Let's even talk about some modern myths that we know of or have heard of or some modern folklore. Do any Does anybody have examples? Yes, I do. I want to tell you about the Lucky Crisps because I think it's hilarious. And just also, maybe I need some of those because my internet is being a bit funny right now. Basically, there are these, this, there's this particular brand of crisps, like these the, uh, snacks in Taiwan. And they are really, really popular, not because of their flavor, but because somehow, and it's not entirely clear how, they have become associated with technological good luck. So if you have a bag of these crisps near your computer, you are supposed to be free of tech issues. And it is just fascinating to me because I cannot find anything about how this arose, but it's such a highly specific belief. I just think it's really, really interesting because you don't really see superstitions and folklore rise up in quite the same way in these days, in my opinion. I'm not even sure if this counts as like modern myth, maybe modern superstition. Modern folklore is angel numbers. People talk about them all the time. Even secular people talk about angel numbers. And I'm just like, what is with this? So I guess for those of you who don't know, which you, if you listen to us, you probably, I don't know, you're probably, you've probably seen them around. You maybe get DMs about them on Instagram, but it's basically usually repeating numbers Sometimes it's like one, two, one, two, one, two, one. Well, I guess that's still repeating. It's usually repeating single digits. Sometimes it's multiple digits repeating. And these are allegedly signs from angels. This was something that was created by Doreen Virtue in the 1990s and the early 2000s. Maybe there's some precedence with Swedenborg, but I really doubt that she had any crossover there. Swedenborg also has angel numbers, but they're not like, you know our angel numbers today I and mean, that's like just something that kind of spawned out of nowhere to me that would be modern superstitious thing that people believe in and we'll just I, like i don't know the point of it people would just like either. angel number understand angel numbers and like that's the thing people would be like oh an angel number and i'm like but and then like that's it cool you saw an angel number <laughs> that's it 
maybe well, just looking like, like I feel like it's a very natural thing for people to to be a, mm-hmm. to, to to find spiritually interesting because it's repetitive right it jumps out at you I think we're wired to find patterns in things and so it makes sense to me that people would find them enthralling and entrancing just for the repetition alone even if there isn't really very much right. of a story behind it yeah, but I want to know, like, where they get the meanings from. Because I will see, like, the post on Instagram and stuff, and it's like, oh, 111 means this. And, like, I saw – I was on TikTok wasting time. Because oh, why? I, <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> I know, it's terrible. And I saw a TikTok where, like, someone put an order for an angel number necklace. It was, like, 666. And it was one of those customer stories. And they were like, they got a message from somebody and they're like, oh my God, 666, like the devil's number, right? It's like satanic number, whatever. And this person was like, no, 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 it's an angel number and it means protection. I was just like, where did you even get that from? Like, I don't, I don't know of any historical basis for any of that besides just being made up to, I have no idea. So yeah, I don't understand angel numbers. And Dorian Virtue has recanted all of that anyway, so. (laughs) So it's not legit anymore, guys. Yeah, she says she canceled her own creation. Oh, I'm trying to think of what other, like, because like, so there's a lot of, like, modern, like, little beliefs of things. It's obviously Gamaitra, system originating from Jewish magic, where you calculate certain values based on letters, and then you can use those numerological values to kind of build further associations. So that's right. one way I can see people developing associations with angel numbers, but... Everything I've seen has been like extremely tenuous and forced and kind of like reverse engineered to mean something relevant. Um, I don't think these originally rose from Gematria at all. Gematria, though, it is so much more complex than that. Like it's not just adding up the Hebrew numbers to like get a specific value. There's a lot more that goes into that. So I think even if that is where it was initially taken from, it's such an oversimplified version of it that it really holds no legitimate basis, if that makes sense, at least in my opinion. Oh yeah, for sure. Like it's it's absolutely nonsense. <laughs> Another thing that like I think dies or falls into the realm of modern mythology and modern folklore is often like political mythology and political folklore, which a lot of it really becomes in many ways. You know, like here in the U.S., people will mythologize. You know, the founding fathers, and they become these egregores almost of themselves. <laughs> like there are myths of like you know the George Washington and the cherry tree honest abe like he couldn't tell a lie and all of that or like the lucky penny you know so that there's a lot of american folklore based on like political figures of the past and also the present but there's also a lot of american modern folklore just because we're just like an immigrant hub that all kind of like melds together like there's unique italian american folklore there's unique irish american folklore because it blends with the landscape uh, around it and the other people that they interact with so i would consider those like very much along the lines of like modern mythologies especially like george washington and the cherry tree i would describe as like modern mythology because it's a specific story that tells you what you're supposed to do yeah like, i just typed in george washington cherry tree and the first thing that popped up was george washington cherry tree myth what about things like the like the Loch Ness monster i think like those are also what i think of when i think of modern myths like the story of frankenstein yeah. or like dr beckel and mr hyde like Dracula, all of those I would consider kind of modern myths. They're stories that are told, yes, partially for entertainment, but I also think they have like kind of moral guidance. It's like through this story, you learn like what is maybe good or bad, you know, so on and so forth. The Loch Ness Monster maybe is more more folklore than it is a myth, but 
I think those also kind of fall into this category. Well, actually, Astra, uh, Nessie is real, as I, I live yeah. in Scotland, and I have seen her, so uh, that's <laughs> good. <laughs> I'm afraid we, we've got to scrap that one off the list, but um, the rest of them, definitely. <laughs> I've been trying to, I've been trying to, there, we have a pond near me, and I've been trying to, you know, start up a, a local folklore about um, a, a, a local Loch Ness monster, or n- not, like a local pond monster. Also, for our non-Americans, since I you know, I don't, don't want to isolate people be like, you know, the story about George Washington. The story of George Washington, the cherry tree goes like this. George Washington was six years old. We used to hatch it as a gift and damage his father's cherry tree. When his father discovered what he had done, he became angry and confronted him. Young George bravely said, I cannot tell a lie. I did cut it with my hatchet. Washington's father embraced him and rejoiced that his son's honesty was worth more than a thousand trees. And I remember you read this story as a, you know, a little kid. And very much like, you know, I see this a lot, like working in a very historic area, see a lot of mythologizing of, you know, the founding fathers, like even parts of Stonewall have been mythologized, you know, in modern queer history, like the idea that they threw bricks, which for those who don't know, they did not throw bricks at Stonewall. (laughs) Well, they didn't start out throwing bricks at Stonewall. So there's a lot of like mythologizing, you know, that that happens uh, naturally, I think. I think the main difference maybe between modern mythology and mythology of the past is that like we know that these people like we don't deify these people like we're not actively worshiping them like even though people will sometimes seem to worship historical figures like they're not they don't actually deify them they're not never claiming that this person is a god like a pharaoh or something like that they work with them more in like an ancestral sense right it's like you are a person in history and it's like i'm gonna work with you for assistance and whatever thing but yeah we don't deify them to the level of like like no one no one that i know of prays to george washington people will sometimes name their kids george washington like hang up pictures of george washington which is like borderline like (laughs) worshipy but like no one i know has ever actually prayed to george washington or set up something like that you know but do you think with enough time that could happen (laughs) I think it could. I think for sure with enough time it could happen. I don't know why I pray to him for your bad dental hygiene, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't he have stolen teeth? He had wooden teeth, I wooden think. Wooden teeth, yeah. Ugh. Gross. I had heard that he had teeth that had been stolen from slaves. I'm not quite sure if that is accurate or not, but that is the I I wouldn't be surprised. I would, yeah, I would not be it. surprised. I don't really know all that much about George Washington. So we we talked about mythology and folklore a lot. What about superstition? Where does this kind of fall into the mix? Like, what's the difference between those two things and the in superstition? I think there's a, a much harder divide between modern superstition and modern folklore. You know, like superstition of lucky, like sports. You see it all the time in sports, right? People wearing their socks inside out or something, or like wearing their lucky underwear. That's very much superstitious because it's 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 devoid from any sort of deeper folkloric or religious cultural beliefs. Basically, every definition I looked at for superstition was very almost derogatory. The fact that it's it's unfounded, it's mm-hmm. irrational, it's based on fear or ignorance. It's, it's just kind of an instinctive response to your surroundings that is not necessarily rational. But obviously, and, and that, that means it doesn't have any grounding in folklore, but it also doesn't have any gr- necessarily grounding in reality. Which is kind of interesting because I think that there is some suggestion that superstitions might actually arise from a natural way that our brains work in terms of making associations between outcomes and 
inputs. I agree with that a lot because like I the two that came to my mind immediately when we're talking about superstitions is like the phrase, if you step on a crack, you'll break your mother's mm-hmm. back or like walking under a ladder is seven years of bad luck or something like that. And it makes you wonder like those had to arise from somewhere, right? So did somebody step on a crack and then their but their mother broke their back and like that's how that came about? Or did somebody indeed walk under a ladder and then experience a significant chunk of bad luck? superstitions are something to me that it might be founded in reality at one time but that it's been kind of expanded and enhanced to an unrealistic level and then it kind of in that sense it becomes more supernatural and illogical to then assume that like this is a consistent thing that will happen all the time right and you know like I remember you guys were saying I don't remember which episode this was in but you guys were talking about you know scientists and labs having like random things like I think those are mostly like superstitious beliefs yeah because they arise from like they don't really seem to arise from any sort of unified not even unified but they don't arise from anything other than like someone started doing it one day and now it's like Like if we stop it's gonna screw everything up (laughs) yeah yeah so there's actually a theory that is is kind of based in psychology which suggests that our brains are kind of wired to be superstitious. And this was shown by an experiment back in 1948 with with pigeons by someone called Skinner. And if you're a psychologist, you probably know this, so I apologize for recounting redundant information. But it's something called operant conditioning. So basically, this pigeon is given a food hopper at regular intervals. And these are completely random intervals. But the bird starts to replicate the behavior that it was performing whenever it was given the food because it's associating that positive reward with whatever it was doing. It's basically becoming superstitious because it's receiving this reward and it's trying to um, adapt its behavior to receiving more rewards. And there's an argument, although it's been heavily criticized, that our brains work like that too and that we, basically everything we do is this based on this kind of behaviorist model. What do you think about that? This just makes me think, I've been trying to train my cat to do some tricks so am I making my cat superstitious? <laughs> I think there's something to that. Like superstition feels distinct to me from folklore. Like I think there are culturally specific superstitions, maybe. It's like superstitions are are very like, they're so niche, right? They don't really seem transcendent in many ways. Like except for like a seven o'clock crack break your mother's back like that. But like no one I know actually follows that superstition. That's like just kind of like a superstition that people have but like lucky like people having lucky charms that they bring to games or something or bring to tests superstitions sometimes feel like very hyper hyper local even within single family units or teams you know we mirror the behavior of people around us and our brains are wired to identify patterns and things i don't think it describes the whole of the story but i think there there is something to that I do kind of agree with the conditioning idea because the the experiment that was done reminds me a lot of like Pavlov's dog, right? Like same kind of idea, behavioral conditioning experiment. And I think what happens is that people like hold to a superstition being like, yes, if I you know bring this thing, like this um, charm with me to every single test, I always get an A when I have it with me. And if I don't, I do terribly, like a B or a C or, or fail. And I think like after repeated experiences where that superstition seems to gain validity by it becoming like true then it turns from a superstition into more of a belief for that individual which then does have the the capabilities to then change one's actions the difference there is that then the superstition is it's still superstition to everybody else 
And so it might not impact their day-to-day actions. But like that one individual, it changes from a superstition to a belief. And so it does have that impact. So I think if we're talking individual, yes, I agree. If we're talking more community-based, maybe not. Yeah, I think superstitions, once a whole group is practicing superstitions, it's no longer superstitions. It's it's just part of their practice. It's part of their, their set of beliefs. So I think that's where like the difference is. The superstitions are, are really, really decentralized and oftentimes very personal, I guess. I kind of wanted to echo what you were saying about the community aspect of it, because I think this is something that's been brought up in criticisms of this kind of behaviorist model where basically all of our behaviors and superstitions are based on our environment. So there have been criticisms about how that proliferates from person to person, because it's easy to see how one person might develop a superstition, you know, that something happens to them, and then realize that if they perform action, then they receive good outcome. But then when somebody else has to then develop that same superstition without evidence, that's a harder thing to explain. And so there are some models which suggest that there's actually more to it to do with linguistics and communication, which I think pulls us back into the realm of folklore. So it's, again, like a fuzzy definition, and it requires a lot of understanding of how we communicate as humans and tell stories and just relate to one another through myth, I guess. It's actually an interesting point. What I was thinking of earlier is it's like when when a superstition becomes accepted by a larger group, does it then become the folklore of that group or tradition? Because then it's a specific belief or kind of just like fact or something that they take as fact about their culture or their tradition, which then I think fits into the definition of folklore. And so it's no longer a superstition. That's a really interesting line to try and draw in the sand. And I think we'd be hard pressed to really find a way to do so. So within the occult community specifically, right, we have... I think everybody in their own practice has superstitions about their in- from their interactions. But then, and that's typically called like unverified personal gnosis. That's how I would define it. Uh, but then we also have like verified personal gnosis. So at what point does like the UPG become, which is kind of something I would say is adjacent to superstition, become more folkloric I guess you could say to a tradition or a certain practice when it's verified by multiple people I don't know that's a question that I have been wrestling with a lot recently where I have begun to wonder if the concept of UPG is helping us or hurting us as you know modern religions you know I think I mean obviously like it's important you know like there's a lot of UPG that's out there that I'm just like, okay, valid for you. I'm allowed to disbelieve it, but valid for you, I guess. And it's so hard with such decentralized movements, but like at the same time, you know, like this religion's not gonna, these religions don't gain anything by like being stuck because religions naturally evolve with the people. So I've been like thinking a lot about how how useful are these designations between UPG, SBG, and VG, verified gnosis? What is verified? What does it mean that's because we've written about once, you know? And I was also thinking, like, when does something become that, you know? Like, is it the classical age? Is it the Hellenistic age? Is it, you know, does something in the medieval age, like a belief in the med- medieval age, does that still count as, like, verified gnosis? Because there were random things written about pagan deities in the medieval age, and not every, you know, at least in Europe, like, not every European country was strongly Christian, even during certain parts of the medieval age, depending on where you were. So I think it becomes this bigger question 
of like what you know like what when are these helping us and when are they harming us i think religions adapt and they change and i'm i'm also not sure if i would count upg as a superstition because to me upg are more like belief based as opposed to like practical thing based superstition to me usually has a practical component right Mm. so i i don't think necessarily all upg has practical components so i'm not sure they're necessarily superstitions i don't know i think upg is because of the gnosis component it is almost exclusively experiential like it is something that you experience and and know and integrate into your belief system it's not necessarily a superstition which is something that you do in order to avoid xyz or in order to gain xyz Right. I think UPG is, is when we've hit that point where maybe a superstition turns into a belief, right? Like we've made that transfer. Again, I'd, I'd say it's more adjacent than exactly a superstition. But it's interesting you bring up the point of like UPG and the role that it serves within the wider community because I think UPG might actually be one of the reasons why like centralized religion is much less popular. This institutionalization of beliefs is being broken down in modern times. And it's partially because this UPG kind of forces everybody to say like, oh yes, that's your unverified personal gnosis, that's valid for you. And it stops people from having to align with the gnosis of a particular tradition, one group where like that is the accepted thing and your personal gnosis might not be valid in accordance with that tradition, which is why I think these decentralized practices are becoming so much more popular um, in modern times. I'm kind of along the same like boat as spell where I don't, I think UPG is fine to have in your own practice. We all have it. I don't think we would, you know, we can deny that. I, yeah, not all UPG is valid. I'll just come out and say it. And <laughs> <laughs> if your UPG like drastically, dis- fundamentally like disagrees with a part of a practice that you are a part of or a tradition that you engage with, I think we need to address the fact that like it might not might not actually be valid and people need to like learn to be okay with that. I really hate the whole like, oh, all your UPG is valid. I just think it's totally unrealistic. I mean it just kind of opens the way for people to honestly share misinformation about the craft because it's their personal gnosis and people quote unquote can't disagree. Yeah. I, I also think the idea of UPG sometimes makes us like feel very it feels very isolationist sometimes like you know i've had moments of like upg and like i want to share them i i don't know i feel like sometimes people don't don't or like because things don't have to be you know in an institution to have like a a cohesiveness you know like that hyper local practice that i've been talking about all of that it like broke off from like the main catholic church but it is still like tied together by this community shared gnosis uh, and now it's just like the part of their life and part of the way that they design rituals and part of the ways that they design festivals. I, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like UPG, it it puts it, it like puts us in our own boxes as opposed to like shit. Like I don't know. Like Crowley shared his. Like I say what you about Crowley. I don't really know all that much about it, but like he like shared his UPG in many ways, and now people like follow his UPG. I mean, I think that can get really dangerous really quickly, also in decentralized movements, but. I don't know. I feel like there's this like hesitancy to like accept new gnosis in many ways, which is kind of odd. I don't know. I've been, I don't know. I've, that's something that I've been like wrestling with recently is like how I actually feel about the designations of UPG versus shared personal gnosis versus 
whatever verified knows this is. Yeah, I agree with that, actually, because I think we're so much more decentralized that we don't necessarily have leaders in the same way. or We don't also have um, quite as many limitations on who can write books and who gets the information transmitted. So it's almost as if there are so many so many more streams of information that there are lots of micro traditions developing in some ways mm-hmm. so it's it's really really difficult to say okay what is ver- what is verified you know what separates this tradition from that tradition what's different between this individual and that individual um and so the definition of verified is it, it's it's just impossible like how many people does that does that require um you know how deep does that belief have to go it's something that i also really really struggle with I think my biggest struggle is, like, I see people's UPG shared publicly on, like, Twitter, right? And then over time, the next couple of months, this UPG becomes, like, a shared accepted thing that, like, this is the way it is. It's the way it's been for forever. And I'm like, this was something that I saw on Twitter, like, three months ago. And now people are talking about, like, it's fact. Like, so true, though. (laughs) That's, like, my issue with UPGs that so many times your personal experiences are valid and I'm never going to take away from that. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that it's right for everybody. And it's not like a staple pillar of any particular tradition. I think that's where I struggle is it's like, because that's like when UPG becomes verified gnosis, but simply on the fact that like this person is standing member of the community, let's say. And it's not really rooted in any kind of like, solid reasoning and so I think that's maybe something that I really struggle with is it's like if accepting new gnosis is hard because people yeah. don't necessarily want to accept change and I think the process of accepting new gnosis needs to be I don't want to say more gatekept but like Loki also kind of be gatekept just because when you change a tradition like that we have to make sure it's being done in a way, I think that's also respectful of like the old tradition, but then opens the gates to maybe new methods of doing things. But there's a difference between doing so because it has some historical basis or it maybe will add something to the tradition and then doing so because someone who's really popular said something and now it's like this widely accepted thing. It's a really dangerous rope to walk. And I think yeah. we as a community could be more critical about allowing people's UPG to become this VPG simply based on popularity and alleged influence versus having an actual reason why we're doing it like see if it adds something um, or is beneficial to a tradition in some way so I just wanted to say like I think the the key thing that we may be missing from this discussion about verified personal gnosis is that gnosis requires experience like gnosis is not just Mm. seeing something that is written and saying like yeah I'm going to incorporate that into my belief system gnosis is is experiencing something and you know, often going through it in the the praxis sense and incorporating it in kind of a, a more formal way. It's not just kind of seeing and believing, in my opinion. So I think that that's maybe separates the situation you described with Twitter gnosis versus actual verified gnosis. Twitter gnosis. <laughs> no, that's yeah, a good that's point. a really good point. That's a good point. So we can maybe close out the episode with talking about some superstitions that we had people submit in our Discord. We essentially just ask, what are some like superstitions that you know of from your area or that you hear from on a daily basis? Because we wanted to see what people would come up with. So we're going to read some of those, maybe close it out just for fun. We can like split these up if we want to each, you know, take one or two. So one of the ones was from apparently in, is it called Czechia? Yeah, Czechia. Czechia? Czechia. We whip people with willow branches for youth. Listen, if all it took was a whipping with a willow branch to stay youthful forever... 
I'm all here for it. Favorite one that I saw in the Discord was apparently on New Year's Eve on at midnight, people swallow a grape for every chime before midnight. And this practice is so dangerous that local doctors have actually suggested that they space out the chimes. And there's no oh explanation God. as to why this is done either. <laughs> That's so random. That's so um, one of the ones that I get a kick out of was fan death, which is this idea in Korea that it, that you don't want to like leave your fan on. It's like really hard to trace down. I think Henny tried to trace it down, found it initially in the 1920s. I think this is hilarious because I sleep with my fan on almost every night. So, <laughs> and I'm still kicking. Let us know if you're still alive and kicking if you sleep with a fan on in your room. Because I definitely do. Also, let us know any other any other fun superstitions. Final thoughts. As usual, I feel like I'm walking away knowing less than I came in. <laughs> Not knowing less, but there's a lot of things to think about. You know, the, and, and where you stand on, you know, these definitions and, and what they mean for, you know, your own personal belief. I have decided that words are ultimately meaningless. Uh, messy is real. <laughs> um, and that's what I really have to say about that. Like, I, I just think... You know, Words stay, stay skeptical, but just you do you, man. <laughs> I have to agree with that. I feel like this episode has taught me that we all just like assign our own definitions to things with no reason. I mean, that everything boils down to semantics, basically. It's good to kind of have these discussions and like think about how, why, how and why we think about different words and the meaning and the places they have in our own thoughts and beliefs. So this was really fun. I'm glad we talked about it for sure. All right, we will call it a day. Thank you so much for listening. This was fun. It was kind of different than what we usually do, but it was a nice like little change of pace. If you aren't already, please follow us on Instagram. It's just Tessies and Calders. You can find us super easily. We typically post hints for upcoming episodes there, um, and you can guess what they are ahead of time. We do usually tell you, though, the day before the episode, um, so you're not caught totally blind. We also have a Discord, also just called Tessies and Cauldrons. They're really easy to find. We essentially just hang out and have really deep discussions about lots of things, and occasionally some of us present either occult papers or scientific papers related to occult topics in our journal club every now and then when we have time. Those are always fun discussions to have. If you're interested in any of that, do come join, join the community and hang out with us. Until then, we'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye.